Good evening. In Greek mythology, there lived a man by the name of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was the founder and king of Corinth, and among his accomplishments was that he instituted the Isthmian Games, which were similar to the Olympics and were even more popular at the time. Homer wrote about Sisyphus and stated that he was the wisest and most prudent of all mortals. Other writers, however, paint a very different picture. According to tradition, Sisyphus was a cunning, sly, and evil man who used to waylay travelers and murder them. But that's not what made him notorious. Sisyphus is most noted for his betrayal of the gods. He was accused of stealing their secrets. Not only that, it is also said that he chained and bound the god of death, Thanatos, so the deceased could not reach the underworld. Because of this, Hades himself intervened and Sisyphus was severely punished. And it was his punishment that made him famous. Sisyphus was consigned to Tartarus, or the underworld as the Greeks referred to it, where he would spend all eternity pushing a large boulder up a hill. Once he got to the top of the hill, he would watch the boulder roll back down. Then he would return to the foot of the hill and he would start the process all over again. That was Sisyphus's life in the afterlife, at least according to mythology. He would labor and toil. He would push and strain. He would thrust his body at this stone, every muscle tightening and every fiber of his being exerting itself toward moving his wretched stone up a steep grade. Finally, he would reach the summit only to see it roll back down. It would rest at the bottom of that hill waiting for him to return and start all over. That was his punishment. That was his sentence. That was eternity for Sisyphus. What a terrible punishment that would be, right? To spend all of eternity pushing a huge boulder up a steep hill, yet that's what many of us do every day. We find ourselves pushing a huge boulder uphill, a boulder of sin and despair, a boulder of guilt and disappointment, a boulder of helplessness and hopelessness. We labor and toil, we push with all of our might, striving for the apex, and when we reach the top, we watch as our boulder just rolls back down the hill. It's a never-ending process. We fail over and over again until eventually the question gets asked, what's it all for? Why try? I'm just going to mess up again anyway. What am I working for? It's those types of questions that lead to hopelessness and despair. They also lead to one questioning the character of God, saying God is unfair or he doesn't care about me. Why doesn't he take this boulder away? You know, many times we are working for the wrong person and the wrong purpose. God calls us to service, but that doesn't involve pushing a boulder of sin and despair. He doesn't command us to break our backs, shoving a rock of disappointment and hopelessness up a hill. God doesn't work that way, and he doesn't expect us to do that type of work either. It was Jesus who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." My yoke is easy and my burden is light. As our divine employer, if you will, God offers the best benefits package imaginable. We are well taken care of, not just in this lifetime, but for all eternity. Our wages are peace, comfort, security, and hope. The story is told of a human resources manager interviewing a young applicant and reaching the end of the interview, the human resources person asked the young accountant, who was fresh out of school, what starting salary were you thinking about? 
And the accountant said, well, in the neighborhood of 100000 a year, depending on the benefits package. And the interviewer said, well, what would you say to a package of five weeks vacation, full medical and dental, company retirement fund to a 50% of salary, executive share option scheme, profit-related pay, and a company car leased every two years, say a five series BMW. And the accountant sat up straight and said, wow, are you kidding? And the interviewer replied, yes, but you started it. You know, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a benevolent employer who promises potential employees on his team full employment, full-time jobs, and full benefits. Layoffs, recessions, and hiring freezes are all absent under his ownership. The rewards that God promises his workers are no joke. They shall be paid in full. What other job could you be paid more than what you're worth and get more than you deserve? And, and don't say preaching, please. Yet that's what those of us who come into God's service can expect. I'm sure many of us have made some New Year's resolutions. Perhaps you, you vowed to rid your life of some things and add some new things to your daily routine in order to be better. You know, a new year represents a new beginning. It's a time for fresh starts and renewed focus. Well, I've got a resolution for you. Give your boulder one last shove and join God's workforce. Truth is, most of our resolutions are only focused on tweaking or making minor adjustments. They are only designed to make us slightly better. I resolve to lose weight so I can be a little slimmer. I resolve to exercise so I can be a little healthier. I resolve to control my temper so I can be a little nicer. I mean, whatever it is we resolve to do, the intended result is usually the same old us, just fine-tuned with the rough edges smoothed out. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these resolutions are wrong to make. I'm simply suggesting that we go a step further and we look at things from a spiritual perspective. God does not want the same individual with minor adjustments. He doesn't intend for us to simply tweak our old self. He wants something far beyond minor renovations. Paul wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. God doesn't want a slightly better version of who you already are. God wants us to be completely changed, completely new. I read a story the other day about a businessman who was selling some warehouse property. The building had been empty for months and needed drastic repairs. All the windows had been smashed. The interior was littered with trash. It was just a mess. And as the businessman showed the property to their prospective buyer, he took great pains to encourage the sale by vowing to replace the windows, to correct any structural damage, and to clean out the interior. But the buyer responded by saying, forget about the repairs. When I buy this place, I'm gonna tear it down and build something brand new. I don't even want the building, he said. I just want the site. Our efforts to improve our own lives are as trivial as trying to clean up a warehouse destined for the wrecking ball. When, God become, when we become God's property, I should say, our old life is over. He makes all things new. All God wants is the site and permission to build. Real change is not about resolution, it's about revolution. Revolution, as we're using it this evening, is defined as a drastic and far-reaching change in ways of thinking and behaving drastic and far-reaching. Two words that suggest much more than just minor adjustment, right? Becoming the person God wants us to be is about more than just tweaking our behavior or, or smoothing out the rough spots. It's about transforming our lives, not just making some minor changes, but throwing out the old. Not just making a resolution, but being resolved for life. 
You see, personal revolution begins with knowing Christ more, knowing God more. It's about reading. It's not about reading a self-help book to make improvements to our character. You know, Ulysses S. Grant was once quoted as saying, hold fast to the Bible as the sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts on your hearts and practice them in your lives. We may not be able to have a face-to-face -face encounter with the Lord as Saul did or, or carry on a conversation with God like Moses did, but we can have a face-to-face -face encounter with His Word. God is speaking to us, and therefore we should be all ears. When you read the Bible, you're not just reading a book. You're discovering God's heart. When you read the Bible, you're not just looking at words on a page. You are listening to what God has to say. And when you hold the Bible in your hand, you hold God's deepest desire for your life. You hold the gospel message a message that can revolutionize your life and transform your character. When you delve into the Word of God, you are not encountering a general notion or idea. You're encountering God. John 1.1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Greek term for word here is logos, and its full meaning is an expression of inner thought. You know, a word reveals a thought to others. Jesus is the Logos, the Word. In both senses, He expresses the mind of God to man. Jesus Christ is presented as the eternal Logos, the true concept of God, and also the Word expressing that concept fully in His incarnation. When Jesus declares God's Word, He is communicating God's will to man. And therefore, if we are to know God, then we must know His Word. It's been said that Scripture is not a concept. Scripture is a person, and I couldn't agree more. The Word, which is Jesus Christ, became flesh and blood, and, and He came to live among us. The Bible is our great opportunity, and it's an opportunity to know Him better and for Him to speak to us. Psalm 119, verse 11 and following reads, Your Word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. This prayer should be our prayer because they are the words of one who has resolved to know God more, one who has been more than tweaked but one who has been personally transformed and one who is consumed by God. You know, making resolutions is easy. Anyone can make a resolution, but being resolved for life, that's a whole different matter. Being resolved for life means being willing to reinvent yourself, willing to go beyond minor repairs to complete renovation. It's about changing our entire focus, our, our entire behavior, our entire way of thinking, in our entire way of life to meet the standard for which God has set before us. Transformation is not adding a little here and there. It's not taking away a little here and there. Transformation is a radical change, a revolution, drastic and far-reaching. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You know, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness means to put God in his proper place. It means to give God the priority that is due him, and it means to put ourselves in the proper place as well. God is first, not us. We cannot reverse the order. We cannot put ourselves on the throne. We must seek his kingdom and his righteousness and not our own pleasures and pursuits. So when we place God's will at the forefront of our hearts and our minds, that has a direct bearing on what our heart sees. 
Again, we can make resolutions concerning our spirituality. We can say, I'm going to come to church more, or I'm going to read my Bible more, or I'm going to pray more. But until God assumes his proper place in our lives, you know, these resolutions will mean nothing. Resolutions can be made that provide improvement or slight alterations, but that's not what we're after here. It's revolution we're after. It's transformation that we're seeking, and the only way to be truly transformed is to allow God to assume control. God's place is on His throne. Our place is bowing down before Him in humble submission. When we resolve to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, we are resolving to live in humble submission to God. We are saying that we recognize our place, that we are not in control, and we are saying that it's not all about us. A great verse on transformation is Romans 12, 2, where Paul writes, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You ever feel consumed by culture? Through television, radio, magazines, etc., our society tries to tell us that we have to look a certain way and dress a certain way or live a certain way or act a certain way. And honestly, it can be very easy to get consumed and conformed by our culture. But Paul says, don't let society squeeze you into its mold. Allow God to mold and shape you. A Christian will be countercultural at times. He will always be going against the flow because a Christian is different from the world. He holds different values. He seeks different things. And he has resolved to be consumed by God and not by the culture around him. Avon Malone used to say, in the heart of every man is a cross and a throne, and we can occupy only one of those places. Jesus will occupy the other. When we place ourselves on the throne, we crucify Jesus again, and we put him to open shame. Only when we place ourselves on the cross can Jesus assume the throne of our heart and become king of our lives. Look, what we seek is what we become. Seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness means placing God on the throne and placing ourselves on the cross. When we accept Christ as the rightful king of our lives, we will have no trouble dying to ourselves and assuming our rightful place on the cross in our heart. We will be able to say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And what a worthy goal that is, right? Many, many years ago, there was a young lady who approached me before church one evening and asked if she could talk with me. And so we went to my office and she spoke of how she had been contemplating baptism. And I asked her, as I do everyone, why do you feel you need to be baptized? And she said, because I know I'm not right with God. She said, you know, Chris, I have thought about this for a long time. There have been so many Sundays, she said, that I've gotten one foot out into the aisle, ready to make that walk up to the front, but I just stayed where I was at. I've heard that very same thing over and over again. Why do we feel apprehensive about stepping out into the aisle? What keeps us from leaving our pew? I believe it's that boulder. Sin, despair, guilt, hopelessness that weigh us down. They rob us of our strength and our energy. They keep us from stepping out and coming to God. Or we're just so busy pushing it up the hill that we fail to see what God can do for us. Are you ready for a change? Are you tired of pushing that boulder? Has the weight of sin bowed you to despair? Do you long for a better, more meaningful existence? Have you asked yourself, is this all that life is? Well, the time is now. 
You can't keep doing what you've always done and expect different results, right? You've tried it one way, now try it another. You must begin anew. You must make a change. You must make a commitment to live a better life, and you must turn over a new leaf. As long as you're alive, there is hope. It's never too late. But use your time wisely because you never know how much of it you have. Don't put it off any longer. Give that boulder one last shove and let me know if you need to talk. I love you. I'll see you soon. God bless.